Hello and welcome to the Wrestling Journal, the first ever episode. Today we're going to be looking at a very important and big wrestler in, in terms of the history of wrestling, somebody who's influenced the whole of the world and culture and pop culture, society, everything has been influenced by what this guy was involved with and what he got into at some point or other in his career. We're going to enjoy looking through some of his matches and the things that he's done. The eight-time WCW Tag Team Champion, the five-time WCW World Heavyweight Champion, the WWF Champion, the WWE Hall of Fame, a Tag Team of the Year and the Pro Wrestling Illustrated number one wrestler of the year. In 1995, I'm talking about none other than the leader of the NWO, one half of the Outsiders, Big Sexy, Kevin Nash. Now, before we go into the review on Big Sexy, I'm going to love saying that today. I, love, I used to love saying it as a kid. It just great name, worked really well, but we'll get into all that later. Right now, we're going to look at a hot topic for the week. As I've said, if you've listened to the introduction program that came out yesterday, thank you so much, firstly, and I hope that you managed to get through it and everything is clarified in your mind for what to expect on these programs and what we're going to cover and how we're going to review the wrestlers. But what I did mention was we're going to look at a hot topic every episode if there's any out there to look at. Fortunately, this time, there's actually a really good hot topic that came to my mind. I picked up on it a little bit in the introduction episode. So if you want to hear my thoughts on wrestlers talking about wrist tape on Twitter, now's the time to maybe go back, listen to that. You know, I talked for maybe 20 minutes on it or something, way longer than I needed to actually. But we talk about that subject anyway and all the things that pain me about modern wrestlers and the way that they are today. But on top of that, there's sort of like this bigger subject that surrounds it. And I thought maybe in this first episode, I could just spend a few moments talking about that, which is the softness of modern wrestlers on social media. Specifically, I want to look at social media because there's been this big controversy with WE recently. Everyone's talking about how WE are suspending or blocking their wrestlers from third party organizations like Twitch and whatever else you stream on nowadays. I have my own Twitch, so I get it. It can be a really lucrative platform for people. It's a, an income stream for a lot of wrestlers or another income stream, which I'll get onto in a moment. But the point here is, is that WWE are blocking their wrestlers from doing other things that help them to make money. And to me, I understand it. And when the news came out, while I was a little bit saddened by it, I mean, it's never nice to hear that a company is, you know, almost putting a chokehold on their talent and saying you can or can't do this. They're almost, it just feels like they're being autocratic and they're controlling the very nature of, of their people. There's this whole discussion about the fact that, you know, wrestlers are independent contractors. What does that mean? How does that look? David Bix Bixenpan, I don't know how to say the guy's name. I'm sorry, David, if you managed to somehow listen to this episode. He talked about the fact that, you know, they should be unionizing. Wrestlers need a union so that they can come against this stuff and actually make demands. 
I agree with the unionization of wrestling. I want to start with the real plain and simple point. I think wrestlers need to have a union. If you don't know already, and this is going to come up, I'm sure, on most episodes, I used to be a professional footballer, so I will often glean from my experiences in that profession whenever there's similarities or whenever something feels relevant. And when it comes to this subject, it definitely feels relevant. I had a chat with somebody who sort of said to me, you know, American footballers don't have this problem and it's different for them. And I was like, that's great. You're using American football, which I know nothing about. So I can't tell you how they're signed up to contracts. I still don't know. I haven't even, I don't want to research that because right now it's not an issue to me. What I know is that as a footballer in the UK, you would be known as a self-employed person. Self-employed is the equivalent of an independent contractor in the United States. It means that you can essentially work for whoever you like, but you sign a contract which basically signs over exclusivity rights for you and the use of who you are and the skills that you have. And that's what happens. Footballers sign a contract, three-year deal, four-year deal with whatever club, and then they're part of that organization for those years until there's either a contract termination and a mutual agreement to part ways, which happens a lot. Maybe the contract runs out and you end up getting released, or there's a transfer. Now, transfers are something that interests me with wrestling because I'm surprised that AEW doesn't buy out a contract from WE. It's possible, but you have to agree to a fee to do it. And I'm sure that with football, there are so many clubs worldwide, it's easier to negotiate and there becomes a transfer market. When it comes to wrestling, it's not possible because you've only got one or two main players who can afford the contracts. So essentially what would be happening, AEW would be outbidding themselves and WE would be heightening the price of their talent to make it impossible or very unrealistic for AEW to buy someone and vice versa. So that's why you don't see sort of transfers in wrestling. It's possible you could buy out a contract. And what almost happened back in the 90s with Bret Hart was that situation. Vince McMahon had to decide, am I going to allow Bret to stay and financially bankrupt us in doing so or am I going to push him to be released so instead of asking for a transfer fee he actually just negotiated the release of Bret Hart from his contract so that he could negotiate with WCW and then go there so that's the way that wrestling seems to do it they they tend to negotiate because there just aren't enough companies out there to be creating a transfer market the economy doesn't work when there's only one or two main players who can afford it. You would end up having people being sold for hundreds of millions rather than in football it goes from hundreds of thousands all the way up to 100 plus million nowadays. So the economies of scale are greater in, in football than they are in wrestling. So in that sense, don't expect transfers and stuff like that. But everything else is very similar with the way that it works, particularly with contract negotiations, particularly with... And when it comes to the exclusivity of rights about the person themselves. So David Beckham, when he signed with Manchester United, there was no marketing agreement in place for him when he first signed at Manchester United. But what happened was he then had 
his intellectual property rights changed in his contract when he became a megastar. Once he blew up and the marketing engine got behind him and everyone was behind David Beckham, the brand, that's when they started negotiating IP rights into his contract. And that's one of the main reasons why Alex Ferguson had to let him go. Because ultimately, David Beckham wanted money and royalties from everything that Manchester United made. And it became too much of a business thing for him, so he let him go. And that's one of the main reasons why Beckham went to Real Madrid, biggest club in the world at that time. And it just made sense. Marketing-wise, he got a massive chunk of the royalties from his rights and all that stuff. That's what happens in football. It happens in wrestling as well, but it also happens in other sports. I just don't know how the contracts are written up, but I know that in football and wrestling, they're very similar. So when you start in football, and this is where I started, I was fresh into the world of football and you you know, you know get offered your first contract. Most young players will just take the contract without, even with an agent, the agent won't usually put specific details like that in yet because it's your first professional contract. It's the first time that you're signing exclusively with one company or organization, however you want to look at it. With wrestling, it's the same principle. You sign, and especially for young talent, young talent are not going to get any meat at the negotiation table. They're not going to get any food on their plate. WE are going to take everything and say, you are owned by us. You do what we say because we are giving you a lot of money to be part of our organization, to wrestle for us. We're going to expose you to an audience that you couldn't reach in any other organization. And I don't think anybody could argue with that point at the moment in wrestling, even with AEW. The exposure that WWE have worldwide as a global brand is so much larger than anybody else. I would say that WE have more of a global reach than all of the other wrestling organizations put together. That includes New Japan, that includes A&W, that includes Ring of Honor. You could add all these guys together and they wouldn't even scratch the surface of the reach that WE have. And with that reach comes power. And that's why when it comes to negotiating contracts, when it comes to exclusivity rights, when it comes to marketing deals, WE control everything. The only way that you can start getting any control back yourself is if you make a name for yourself outside of wrestling, which is what's happened with stars like The Rock and John Cena. Remember, The Rock's name is still owned by WWE, but The Rock agreed from his star power to share those rights. Stone Cold Steve Austin is still owned by the WWE. That's why he calls himself Steve Austin. They can't get that part of his name. He's allowed to use that. Or at least he probably changed it from Steve Williams. And that's the point I'm making here is that there is leeway, but you have to earn it. You have to get to this point in the business where you are showing WE that you're more powerful than just wrestling. Once you get to that sphere, and John Cena's going to get there if he's not already where he's going to have royalties and cuts of his own naming rights now that WE don't. They'll just start sharing the contract with them because ultimately John Cena as an actor is becoming bigger. Dave Batista would be the same. Although if you look at Dave Batista, he doesn't use the name Batista anymore. He uses Dave Bautista. He's gone back to his original name. So for him to get away from naming rights, to get away from having to share any of his money with WE, he just uses his real name. 
And that is why we're seeing people like Paige go to her real name on her Twitch channel. That's why a lot of wrestlers will just switch to their original real-life name because that's not touched by WE. And I know that people have talked about, well, WE have claimed that they own the name of the wrestler. They do, but they don't own the real name of the person. That's impossible. It's not possible to sell your... I'm sure you can negotiate it if you're stupid. But most people aren't stupid and they don't sell their actual name to a company. It would just be absolutely ludicrous if you did that because you'd have to legally change your name the second you leave the company, which is just crazy. This is why the Ultimate Warrior changed his name legally because by having his name legally as the Ultimate Warrior or just Warrior, I believe he changed it to, he stopped and prevented WE from stealing his gimmick. And that was a very clever way of doing it, which is why WE hated him for it so much. Because they wanted to market the Ultimate Warrior, and when the Warrior changed his name, everybody started saying, well, what are we meant to do here? There was a conflict of interest, and ultimately the Warrior managed to beat WWE on that case, as far as I'm aware. And was able to sell his own merchandise. But in the end, he became friends with WE because he realized the Warriors' reach was nowhere near as big as the WE. And that's usually what happens. Wrestlers will turn back and realize, I could actually make more money if I'm friends with WE than I could by just being a bit of a rebellious, spoiled kid and running off crying and, and doing it my own way. Unless, of course, you're The Rock and you're in mainstream movies. So... That's sort of how the naming rights will work. And I'm only saying this from my experience of football. And I haven't even started on third-party platforms yet. We'll, We'll go into that in a moment. But the way that naming rights will work is simply that they'll have an agreement on when and how they can use their name. And they have to conform to that because they've signed the contract. Let's not forget that she wasn't forced to sign the contract that gave her naming rights to the WE. None of these wrestlers were forced to do it. Okay. And I know that I'm sounding very pro-WE at the moment. And I will try and balance that out in a moment, which is why I'm in support of a union. The wrestlers are so stupid that they haven't formed a union. It's their own fault they're in this situation. They have no one to blame but themselves. If one of them had the courage to stand up and say, we're going to start a union, which I think at this point it's closer than ever before to happening, If one of them was strong enough to say, we're going to start this and see what happens. Firstly, they'd probably get fired by WE. I've got no doubt that WE threaten them in in ways that aren't threatening. I'm sure that they allude to the fact, to their talent, that if you do this, if you try and build a union, we're going to let you go. I have no doubt that they've alluded to that. And they do that by building a business culture. It's all presented through the culture of the business. It's like mythology where you just, you hear rumors that Vince McMahon said that if there's a union, he's going to fire everyone. That is how they infiltrate and do it without threatening people directly with their jobs because it's illegal. You can't threaten somebody for joining a union, but they can if they do it through the culture of the organization. And that's what WWE have done throughout their history. From what I've understood of the business, from when you hear wrestlers, historians talking about WE and the way Vince McMahon is, he's built a culture that actually protects itself. And there's nothing wrong with that from his perspective. He's protecting his business. 
He's protecting his intellectual property rights as WE as a company. And he does that by building this culture where his staff and employees, the full-time staff I'm talking about, and maybe some of the wrestlers, will build this mythology about what will happen if said scenario takes place. And that stops people from ultimately taking action. Which is why we've never seen WE wrestlers stand out and say, I'm quitting unless we have a union. And ultimately, you have to remember the balance here. These are people who their livelihoods is wrestling. They're making a good living off of the WE. And this is why I think a lot of them don't rock the boat. When you're earning at least 100 grand a year, are you really going to rock the boat and say that you want a union and risk your family's security? And, and I mean, this is early retirement for a lot of these wrestlers. And it's the same with footballers. You wouldn't rock the boat of the club unless you're in a position to do so. That's what David Beckham had. You have to be in a position where you know you could get a better deal somewhere else before you start shaking things up. And wrestlers in WE today don't have that. AW fans, I know that you're going to be disappointed, but you're not on their level yet. As a company, AEW is nowhere near the size and power of WE. So AEW are going to tell you, we let our wrestlers do all this stuff. We give them total freedom. They've got autonomy over everything they do. But that's simply because AEW's not big enough yet. It's not a big enough corporate monster. And when that happens, you will see AEW. And I'm sure it will happen at some point. As long as they're still alive and growing, it will happen where AEW begin to get corporate. Because Tony Khan will start to lose control. Now, the only way they're going to keep it is if they keep AEW as a private company. If, they're, if they remain as a private company, which is what WE did for years and years and years. And I'm, I was even surprised that WF floated on the stock exchange. But as long as they're a private company, Tony Khan can protect himself and, and maintain complete control. If his dad has given him all this money and said, go and run the company and I'll keep funding it because it's your passion project. Well, guess what? AW will never have that level of influence from shareholders. Stakeholders always, because stakeholders always exist, regardless of whether you're private or public. But what we're going to see is this transition at some point where AEW's got to make a decision where it's so big, do they want to bring in more investment so that they can grow as a company and do more things? Or is the money of their da- of his dad enough to count and develop the company and build it into a a real competitor to WWE. That's where we're going to get to. Now, let's talk about third parties and then we're going to get on with the actual review. Third party ownership, and I'm going to tell you this from a footballer's perspective. Footballers can go and do whatever they want. We have so much spare time. The rumours, the stories, the stereotypes of professional athletes having loads of time being overpaid. It's For a majority, it's all true. Even in the lower leagues, and that's where I started, my career was in the lower leagues, so I was offered a very lucrative contract. At 17, I was offered 56 grand for my first year at 17. And that was because I was seen as a good player. I was offered a decent contract. At that time, it was a very good contract. It was one that it would have been very hard for me to turn down. Nowadays, it'd probably equate as like probably five to 10 grand a week, which for a 17 year old would be a big deal. Unless you're Jude Bellingham, who's just gone from my hometown team, Birmingham City, to Brescia Dortmund, and he's probably on 40, 50 grand a week now. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that when you're 
first breaking in, you're getting paid a decent salary, but you have a lot of time on your hands as well. You go training, and we used to do two training sessions a day in pre-season, and then during the season, it would usually drop down to one training session a day. Now, one training session might be two hours. It could be four or five hours. It just depended on the game that you were playing that week, your opponents, also your own performance and where you're at. If you're injured, you're not doing anything other than rehab. So that means you've got even more time on your hands. The point being that you can basically do what you want with your spare time. Nobody ever really stopped us from doing whatever we wanted to do in our spare time. However, if the club found out that you were doing something that they deemed inappropriate because it affected or tarnished the reputation and image of the club, they would talk to you about it. They would warn you. They would fine you. They would do a load of things to stop you from doing it. They have every right to fine you because they're contracted, remember. Wrestlers are contracted to WE. WE can fine them for misconduct. It might not be gross, it, but it could be misconduct. If, it, if they do anything that's against the rules, they'll get fined. And this is why you have wrestlers being fined for smoking weed. It's against their contract. The rules say that they're not allowed to do any drugs of any kind. And so if they're caught doing weed or marijuana, whatever you want to call it, they're going to get fined. And that happens all the time. I think a lot of them have spoken openly about that, that they actually don't mind taking the fine because they're paid so much. When it comes to third party stuff, when it comes to either being an Instagram influencer, whether it comes to any social media platform or streaming platform like Twitch, well, what we're talking about is ultimately the wrestlers are selfishly trying to make money on the side. That's what this comes down to. I don't say selfishly because I mean they're bad people for doing it. Ultimately, they're just trying to cash in on their current reputation, their current marketing value. So I get why they're doing it. But WE are contracted to them as, an, as their employer. So WE have every right to say to those people, we're not okay with you having a, a Twitch because it's saying things that we as a company, as a corporate entity, as a publicly listed company don't agree with. So I think you have to understand that shareholders have a big influence on this kind of decision because ultimately if there's a main sponsor for WE and you have one of the talent and let's take Lana, Lana was selling some sort of drink on her Instagram. Imagine if Pepsi are one of the sponsors of WE, which they may be, I don't know, but let's imagine that Pepsi are one of the sponsors and they have an energy drink that they're trying to promote. Do you really think Pepsi are going to keep sponsoring WE if one of the talent is actually promoting a rival competitor on their social media channel. It's not going to happen. No wonder WE have stepped in. And I think we need to remember this, that it's far bigger. The business is far bigger than just the performers. It's easy to just focus on the wrestlers because they're the ones who get all the attention. They're the ones who we see on TV all the time. But what we often forget, and I'm blessed, I've got a master's degree in business. So I understand the, the behind-the-scenes corporate entity that WE is. I get and I can relate to the reasoning why WE would be so against its performers doing stuff that's out of the contract that they've signed with their employees, which are the wrestlers. There's two resolutions for this. 
One is that they unionize because then the same as we had, we had a football, you have the PFA, right? The Professional Footballers Association. Now, that is all of us as peers, professional footballers coming together. We had one guy at the top who would help us to negotiate with clubs things that we wanted to be done right in the business. Now, there is a misconception. Unions are never that powerful. They always appear to be more powerful by name and reputation than what actually what they are. Even in wrestling, if they unionize, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Nothing's really going to change, but there will be small things that are influenced. And that's usually the way that, that unions operate, especially in sport. For example, Black Lives Matter movement in football at the moment that has been heavily influenced by the PFA. The PFA have had a lot of their BAME players have come in and complained. There's a whole load of them who are saying, we're racially abused on, online. Social media is filled with racial slurs against us. We're being attacked. Our clubs aren't protecting us. The league isn't protecting us. The FA isn't protecting us. And so they went into their union and they forced change. And so what's happened is the FA have heightened their no racism campaigns. The Premier League have done the same, and so have the individual clubs. So that's one of the positives that unions can have, but that's a very, very small effect. Even though it feels like it's big because it's cultural, in the grand scheme of things, it's a small change. And that's something that a union will be able to influence in WE. It'll be the same kind of thing. Perhaps it might be around healthcare. They may be able to force changes with healthcare, maybe. It's not guaranteed, because if WE are paying good salaries, if they're paying their employees well, which from what I understand they do, a lot of these wrestlers aren't going to have a leg to stand on in court. And the reason I say that is because as a footballer, I had to pay for my own health insurance. There were companies that would offer discounts and deals, and the, the clubs had partnerships with a lot of those health companies, but... Ultimately, we had to pay for everything like that. We're self-employed, so it was on us to do everything. That's why in football you see loads of tax evasion scandals in Spain in particular because the footballers are self-employed, so they're doing their own taxes. They're not filed by the company, and therefore it can become very difficult. You have to make sure that you have good financial managers. You have to make sure that you're actually doing everything you're supposed to. Now, the one thing I will say, and I, my experience of this is as recent as two years ago, I was involved with a Premier League football club and I would work with the academy, which were the young players. So we did a lot of the coaching. We did a lot of like the advising and consulting on different areas around football. One of those areas was social media. And so we actually had a lecture with the academy players on how to use social media. And we told all the academy players, stay off of social media. That was the message directly given from the club to the players. Stay off of social media. Only use it if you're promoting something that the club does. If it doesn't involve the club, don't talk about it online. Don't talk about it publicly. Stay away from the media. We will set up your media engagements where you can talk. That's football and that's a unionized business. And yet this is the message that comes out of clubs. And there's nothing illegal about it either. There's nothing wrong with it. All the clubs are doing is they're saying we want to protect our investment. We want to protect our own image and sponsor deals. And we want to make sure that we're protecting our own interests. 
it is selfish, but that's the way that business works. And WE is going to be no different. They have too many people to answer to, to just neglect all of those. If they neglect their shareholders for the sake of the wrestlers, they're going to lose a lot of sponsors. They're going to lose a heck of a lot of investment. They would lose more money by doing what their wrestlers want them to do than if they do what they want to do. And that's ultimately why things won't change until either wrestlers unionize or the second thing, wrestlers need to leave. They need to negotiate releases from their contracts. There's two ways of doing that. They do it the friendly way, which is they sit down with WE and they negotiate and hopefully get cut free, which doesn't really happen because WE are not stupid. They don't want to lose everyone to AEW or to competitor. Or you break your contract. That's the only way around it. A wrestler would have to break their contract, which would cause them to be sued, essentially, by WE. There is no doubt in my mind, if WE think that a wrestler has purposely broken a contract, they're going to sue their talent for everything they're worth. They're going to ask for all the money back that they've paid them on the contract. They're going to do the worst kind of thing. I'm not saying they'll win necessarily, but that's what they're going to do. Because they're going to send a message out to people if you try and leave this company, we're going to bankrupt you. We're going to make you suffer financially and you're going to regret doing it. And these are the myths that will be told around the locker room from staff to the employees to the, the wrestlers. These are the rumors that you're going to hear. And those are the things that are going to basically scare you into not doing anything and taking action. So I've looked at that hot topic. I hope that that's helped give you a bit of an insight, both from a business perspective and a wrestler's perspective. I know for a fact it's frustrating. If I had a Twitch account that was pulling in 40 grand a week, like apparently Pages is doing, I know I'd be mad if WE were saying, we need you to come off of Twitch. Because if I, if I have no understanding of that business side, I get it, you'd be so mad. You'd just be like, hold on, you're literally taking money out of my pocket. And I would personally say to WE, just remember that you're telling me this now because when we renegotiate my contract, I'm going to want you to pay me more money because this is money that I can earn that you're taking away from me. And this is my point. Like, Paige is going to have to make a decision at some point. Can AEW offer her more money as a not... Because she's not going to wrestle unless they clear her to wrestle, which would be dangerous for her own health. And she might not be able to get medical insurance. You've got to remember that with, with her condition. But if she could somehow get cleared to wrestle, could AEW afford to pay her the same competitive salary to what she was on with WE? I'm sure it wouldn't be as much. And then allow Paige to go and do whatever other project she wants to go and do. Those are the questions that are going to be answered over the next six months to six years. Like, we're going to start seeing a snowball effect of wrestlers. The more that this gets talked about, the more that it's going to get closer to, to a breaking point where one wrestler is going to leave WE, break their contract, just get out somehow. And once that happens, everybody else will do the same. At the moment, the current way that it looks to be happening, the current sort of theory of leaving WE is let your contract run out, but make sure that you contact AEW first and that will bump the money that WE give you as an offer, as a final offer. So then if you want, do what Gallows and Anderson did. Sign a, a contract extension for two years with treble your salary or whatever it was they got. And just sit there and enjoy it. 
this is the the sort of implication of when that happens wrestlers fall out of love with wrestling when you're offered more money just to sit still and hold tight in an organization that you don't like doing things that you hate with a character that you don't agree with with an outfit that you hate the look of when you're controlled in that way it absolutely ruins your whole career and it certainly spoils your own motivation to do the thing that you love and that you've loved your whole life. Meza Ozil is my example in football. He plays for Arsenal, plays in inverted commas. He, he's basically sitting at home doing Twitch every day because he's not really part of the squad. He's going to training and doing a couple of hours work each day. But guess what? The club don't care about him. They're just paying him a massive packet of wages to make sure, and they're not doing it to keep him away. They're doing it because they actually thought he was going to be a better player than he was for the money that they're paying him. And the money they're paying him is too high and his competitors can't afford him. So now Ozil is basically doing what Gallows and Anderson were doing. He's sitting at home just enjoying the pay packet and also trying to make other forms of income and revenue while he waits for his contract to run out. And then when that happens... He'll renegotiate with someone else and leave. Or Arsenal will have to agree, make some kind of new agreement with him. But that probably won't happen because they're not going to pay him more because he hasn't done enough for the club. And this is what's happening in wrestling now. And it will continue to happen, which is why I'm always behind this idea that we want AEW to be a success. As much as I hate loads of stuff that's going on within that company, I want it to be a success because... Once it's more successful, WWE will panic with their talent. They'll, tie, they'll do exactly what they did in the Attitude Era. They'll tie all of their young talent down to long contracts. And what will happen is those young talent... I think the difference between the Attitude Era and now is that in WWE, when they signed their young talent to long contracts, those young talent were people like Shawn Michaels, The Rock, Stone Cold, Triple H was signed to a long-term deal. The Undertaker was signed. These guys knew that they were going to get TV time. They knew that they were going to be on TV all the time. They knew that they were going to be wrestling consistently. They knew that they were going to get pushed because they were offered these long-term deals. Nowadays, when you've got a roster of 300-plus wrestlers, like WE seem to have, all of a sudden, being offered a long-term contract doesn't guarantee anything. It's actually gone back to the way that Vince McMahon was... I mean, this is the way that I've been told Vince McMahon works. He doesn't make guarantees. So even though they have a guaranteed contract, it doesn't mean that they're going to get guaranteed time in the ring. It doesn't mean that they're going to get a character push. Vince, from what I understand, is now saying to his employees, here's the time you've got. This is the money we're going to give you. Now it's up to you to do the rest. And I think the problem with that is it goes back to the Attitude Era. And obviously one of the guys, Kevin Nash, I'm going to talk about soon, is all around this subject. He was one of the guys who started this problem in wrestling is that with guaranteed contracts comes complacency. Now, I'm all for guaranteed contracts because it means that wrestlers have security in their short to midterm, sometimes long-term futures. But from a performance perspective, it's really dangerous because wrestlers become complacent performers do it sports people do it footballers do it when they sign massive contracts they know that they're not going anywhere and Meza Ozil is a perfect example of that from the football world 
but I look at the majority of the wrestling roster today and say, look at Randy Orton. Here's a guy who is stuck in complacency because he's happy picking up a paycheck. He's getting TV time as well. And he's actually getting pushed. And here's a guy who you can tell isn't going full out. He's not going all out on his character. He's not giving his all because he knows he doesn't need to. There's no threat for him that motivates him to go further and to do more. Because he's an, he's an established star. He's a future Hall of Famer. He's already done so much in the business. He doesn't need to push himself any further than he currently is. He can just do, he can stagnate and do what he's doing now for the next five to 10 years. He'll pick up the same paycheck, if not more. And guess what? He doesn't care. And that's not going to change, unfortunately. The only way that that changes is you need more competition. You need more companies and not just one. We need two or three big companies that can rival WE to do that. And that's probably never going to happen because there aren't enough wealthy wrestling fans who are going to get involved in the wrestling industry. Which is a shame. I wish there were more billionaires out there. I wish there was a Saudi organization who would actually start up because of this. And would just say, do you know what? we're going to... And I think this may happen. I, I'm not going to predict it. I'm just saying there's a possibility that the Saudis who are paying WE so much money may end up just saying, we're going to start our own organization and we're just going to pay these wrestlers to turn up for us and to create a program for us. The Saudis are one of the ones that... This is why Vince is so obsessed with making a partnership with Saudi Arabians. Because of the money they have, they have the ability to... They could wipe WE out in that section of the world. In terms of the market saturation, if the Saudis started a wrestling organization, the money that they would back behind it would be so big that Vince would struggle to compete with it and the Saudis could basically go to all of the top legends and give them fat contracts because all of their audience still love seeing legends wrestle and then you could develop young talent underneath that and all of a sudden you've literally got a very wealthy WCW competitor now I'm not saying that that will happen I'm just saying that's a possibility that's why McMahon is obsessed with Saudi Arabia and making sure that they have a really good relationship with them. And that's why Vince will keep doing the, the Saudi shows that he's doing. I don't think it's because any other reason than him in fear that these are guys that could legitimately compete with us if we don't work together. And that's why when there was the debacle about the female wrestlers on the roster and wrestlers being told to cover certain parts of their body, all of this has been happening and WE have been compromising because ultimately they know if they let go of that relationship, these people have got enough money to invest in their own business and to start a wrestling organization themselves. Okay, so now we've talked about all that. I feel like that went on a lot longer than it should have. But, you know, this is how it's going to be with the hot topic stuff. Like, there's going to be controversy. There's going to be reasons to explain things through. There's going to be an, an opinion that needs to be shared. So we're going to do that. And if you do and don't agree, like I said, hashtag the wrestling journal. I said this on the first episode. Get it out on Twitter. At me. You can at xharperco, which is my personal account. Just talk to me and we can have these conversations. Let's get that conversation going around these topics because ultimately it's already happening online. But let's join that conversation and, and see if we can actually have a conversation about stuff like this. 
Okay, so let's move on then to the main event. Let's go into the wrestling review of Kevin Nash. Now, like I said earlier, this dude has got a lot of accolades, as he rightly deserves for the the time in the business that he came, not only when he came into the business, but Kevin Nash was very much at the center of everything popular around wrestling. I think everything that he had a hand in just seemed to be popular, and that wasn't a coincidence. That had a lot to do with who he is, not only as a wrestler, but as a brain as well. Very smart, intelligent guy, knows what he's doing, and just what I liked was him and the click had this idea of logic and they could work things out very logically. I wish that if I'd have ever got into wrestling, I would have loved, I would have been on the phone to Nash, Michaels, Triple H, Sean Waltman. I would have been on the phone to all of them straight away because they, Scott Hall as well. You would want to pick their brains because these were guys who sounded to me like they had some incredible conversations around the business and to be a fly on the wall in those cars I'm sure some of those car journeys would have been crazy others probably would have been pretty boring because I bet they were all asleep hungover but there would have been other times where all of them would have been awake and they all would have been talking about the business and those conversations to me would have been diamonds to listen to they would have been the kind of conversations that if I were a wrestler Those are the conversations I'd be having with both current talent and legends, which is another topic for another day about the way that the modern wrestlers don't communicate and learn from legends like Kevin Nash. So to start the review, let's just reveal to you the sort of matches that I've watched. I'm watching about three of their best matches, what I consider to be three of the individual's best matches. And I've tried to obviously get, because this is about Kevin Nash, Kevin Nash's character is the, I think most people would agree, the most popular of all three or four of his characters. He was Oz, he was, you know, Vinny Vegas or whatever it was called in WCW. Kevin Nash and then, of course, Big Daddy called Diesel in WWF. So I wanted to make sure I got a balance of that. But at the same time, this is about looking at his best matches as well. So... The three matches that I've watched, WCW Slamboree 1997, and this was a three-man tag team match. You had Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and Six, Six Pack, whatever he was called at the time, fighting against Rowdy Roddy Piper, Ric Flair, and then I think the other guy was something green, Kevin Green. He was, I believe he's an American footballer. He certainly wrestled like Mongo McMichael, so I'm assuming he was an American footballer who was well-known. I don't know how many matches the guy had, but he was already better than Mongo McMichael. I was sort of semi-impressed with by what he did, to be honest. But at the same time, it was kind of like, how many shoulder tackles can one man do in a match? If you want to play a drinking game, I don't drink. But if you guys want to play a drinking game, watch that match and take a shot every time Green shoulder tackles somebody in that match. You will not get to the end of the match knowing what you're doing, being coherent or sober. Do that after you've listened to this episode, by the way. Don't do it now. Drink responsibly and all that. Fortunately, I don't have a corporate monster telling me that I've got image rights to uphold. So the other match that I watched was In Your House 1997 versus Shawn Michaels. And this was the Good Friends Better Enemies main event. I believe it was a title match. But this was a great match. 
And then the third one was arguably his very, very best match, which was Survivor Series 95 versus Bret Hart. And that, again, was, I believe that one was for the title as well. But I can't actually remember whether that was a title match or not. But I watched these three matches and just sort of reviewed them all. And so what I'm going to do before we go into all of the stats, before we actually look at, you know, the specific numbers for Kevin Nash and, and what we think about him as a talent, I'm just going to give you the notes. that I, They're pretty quick. I'm going to give you the notes that I wrote down just so that you can understand where I'm coming from and how I rated them. And also, if you've got the WE Network, I do. But if you have it, this is also a great place for you to go and watch these matches. You might even want to pause right now, watch some of the matches so that you understand what my notes are talking about and then join back into the conversation as we start the review because all of the numbers and stats are heavily based around the best matches that Kevin Nash had. So in Slamboree 97... The first thing that I loved was the way that Nash sold Flair's chops really well before even being tagged in. This was when Nash was the tag team partner. He was on the outside of the ring on the apron and Flair is giving everyone the chops. But the way that he sold the chop from Flair was awesome. It was his facials. And one of the things I loved, and I picked this up about Nash while I was watching these, and I didn't notice this before watching his selling was actually really underrated. I never hear about how well Kevin Nash sells stuff. And that's both on defense and offense. Said that in a really American way. But in defense and offense, he sells really well. He also oozes cool. The one thing that like really stood out from this match was the way that like he would talk smack while he was wrestling. And this is something that you don't see very often now. And I think the reason behind it is because often when you're talking smack, you're going to swear, you're going to say things that are really controversial and rude, which for WE's current product, for example, you're not going to see that as much because they won't allow it. And if you try and talk smack in a PG way, you end up talking like, I always remember Hulk Hogan coming out into one of his main events when he was fighting Goldberg. And he says something to like, to the camera like, and you can kiss my... And then he pauses and says, but, and it just made me laugh. Why didn't he just say ass? Why was like, why did he have to, you could tell that he was going to say ass. You could tell that's what he wanted to say. And then he pauses and comically he has to say, but, and it's like in his head, he's remembering, uh oh, I'm going to get in trouble if I say the word ass on TV. So he has to change and thinks of the word that he can revert to. And it ends up being, you can kiss my butt. And so he ends up just sounding like a kid. And it doesn't sound believable. And when you compare those kind of things to the way Stone Cold was, Stone Cold giving the middle finger to everyone all the time, when wrestlers would come down to the ring, they were talking to the camera, they were actually saying stuff that sounded pretty vicious, like they hated their opponents. And I used to love that. And Nash did the same kind of thing. His trash talk was really good. And if you can lip read, you know that what he said most of the time wasn't friendly. And I don't know whether they deleted that. I'm not sure whether they dubbed that out or just like muted it. But you could definitely tell when he was swearing and saying something that was like he was legitimately trying to make himself appear mad and you couldn't hear a thing on the camera. And then there were other times where you could hear everything he was doing, such as selling. So when he actually punches, and this is one of the things I love about Nash, even when he punches, he does this thing like, you know when tennis players are playing a match and they're really going for it and you're all 
especially in women's tennis, you'll hear this actually. All you hear is, uh, and they're hitting the ball and they're just giving it their all. They're, they're giving so much that it's verbally coming out of their mouth. Their effort is pouring out of their mouth as well. So audibly, you can hear the effort that's going into the move or whatever it is they're doing. And Nash did that really well. That was something that I noticed when he laid in the punches and the elbows, the forearms in the corner. He would often make the noise as he was throwing the punch just to sell the fact that he was putting in effort to show you that this wasn't just a regular punch. He was giving everything he had. And so it sells it really well. And it was just a little nuance that I loved of his. And that really sucked me into the believability. And in the first episode, I talked about how wrestling is supposed to be believable but unattainable. And this is what Kevin Nash does really well. He makes it believable but you know that you personally wouldn't have the same level of power that Kevin Nash has to deliver these moves. And because of that, it sucks you into the product and what you're watching. The negative from this match was that he lacks finesse with moves, but makes up for it with his power. So that's like the balance to the, the lack of finesse. And of course, I don't think there's any surprise here, but Kevin Nash wasn't the most technical wrestler around. He didn't pick people up in a aesthetically pleasing way. He didn't present moves in a way that you looked at and were inspired by or felt like, wow, that was a beautiful move. Wrestlers talk about wrestling being an art nowadays. For Nash, it wasn't about being an art. It was about being a destructive force that destroyed everybody in its path. And that was what I loved about his moves. He might not pick you up for the sidewalk slam in the right way, but boy, did he drop you like it hurt. And when you saw it, when you saw his opponent land on the mat, you knew that he was in pain. And he still, as far as I'm aware, Nash still protected the wrestlers he was fighting against. It wasn't reckless power for the sake of compromising safety. It was actually just really powerful moves being delivered, hurting his opponent in order to sell what he was doing as being a realistic move, something that would genuinely hurt your back if you got dropped by a seven-foot giant. The match ends, you can watch that at your own leisure and, and enjoy that, but it's a great match. It's really fun watching Ric Flair walk around the ring being Ric Flair, doing Ric Flair things. Just hilarious, but also all of the NWO, everyone plays a role in that match, and it was to me it was one of Nash's best matches, but it was also just a very good match to watch. So on to In Your House 97 versus Shawn Michaels. What I loved here was Shawn Michaels getting mad at equipment and staff. So this is going a bit away from Nash here. I just had to make a note of this. And I'm going to talk about it when I review Shawn Michaels. But the best thing, the best thing about him, and this makes me laugh just thinking about, Michaels seemed to be so angry at the staff. The cameramen in particular always seemed to get a piece of Michaels' mind. And the best part was, because they were cameramen, you would often hear Shawn Michaels and what he was saying to the cameraman. And he was always so peed at every cameraman that got in his way. Anybody who did something that he didn't like got his fury and got the, uh, the harsh end of his stick. And it was always fun to watch. I used to love watching him just... If something didn't go right and there was a prop that he was using, which is what happened in this match, if you watch the match, there's a spot where Michaels goes through the table and then Michaels picks up an instrument 
to hit i think it's a chair that he's trying to hit nash with and essentially what happened is the wire from the monitor gets caught on the chair so michaels is pulling not only the chair with him but he's dragging this tv monitor with the chair and when he starts bashing nash it it, it is worrying that the monitor's going to flip over with the chair and also hit nash which would have looked cool but i'm sure would have been very dangerous and you can just see how angry Michaels is that the cable is tied around the chair and he's trying his best to like remove it. There's one point where even when he's lying on the table after he's gone through it, he's wrestling with the table cover and he's like, it's, well, at one point he's like rolling around like a pig in a blanket and it's just so funny watching him wrestle and have these sort of sub-wrestling matches with either the, the WE employees or the we props it's just really fun to watch and i used to love that anyway nash had a great attitude disregard for rules and authority was great this specific storyline nash was very angry about vince mcmahon now i didn't watch the previous promos so i don't know the whole context of this but clearly nash was angry with vince mcmahon as well vince would talk on the mic and then nash would keep looking over at him and giving him these looks he would say stuff again just adding to his character he would give these little bits of smack talk outside the ring to vince before he did something he would just give these looks jerry lawler sold it great as well he would always be pointing at vince and trying to get the attention onto vince from diesel to make it just to sell that whole storyline and it made me realize that actually nash was portraying a, a sort of very low low-key stone cold role at this point in the company he was very much against the authorities and he was against and rebelled against anybody who was above him in we um in the we hierarchy and it was great to watch it was just fun watching the reaction of nash and the way that that played out so look for those nuances that that nash added to that role i wrote here that nash was at his best working slow methodical and then short bursts of speed with a good opponent and i've bracketed Rey mysterio because Rey mysterio had a great in my opinion a great feud with nash in wcw it was one of the few times where the nwo actually pushed a younger talent into the main event scene and ray did a great job i think he proved at that moment that he was capable of being in the main event but because it was wcw ray was never going to be pushed he was always going to be thrown straight back into the cruiserweight division which is i'm sure what happened before he left ultimately i, I really loved the way that nash would work even though it was slow and a lot of people don't like that especially nowadays the slowness and the speed that Nash adopted really sold the power of his moves because when he did something, it meant more because he didn't do that much. He wasn't doing 50 moves in 10 seconds. He was doing one move per minute. And so that one move meant more than any of those 50 moves that you saw. And so what it actually did was elevated the believability of every move that he did. And even though I know there are people who criticize Kevin Nash because they say he had a very limited move set, and there's a lot of people who criticize the fact that he, a lot of his stuff was just kicks and punches. But ultimately, when you look at what those kicks and punches were, they were far greater than just standing in the middle of the ring throwing fists or throwing his kicks. He always, and, and this is something that I will allude to 
later as well, but he trapped people in the corner and there's a big psychology element there that I think is often overlooked when it comes to Kevin Nash and we'll talk about that later. His power bomb through the table was excellent. I love that against Shawn Michaels. It was very different. It was something new and unexpected at the time, especially in WWF. I, I, I never saw those spots. I never remember watching those growing up. So seeing this match again and watching a wrestler being powerbombed through a table, it really had an importance because it was different. It was new. It wasn't something that you saw in every main event or in every match. And so, again, it just really sells this idea that Nash was against authority. He didn't care what anybody thought. And again, the Spanish announce table gets broke. He also sold really well. I thought that I was really impressed with the way that Nash sold moves in this match against Michaels. I felt like when Michaels hit him with a move, it actually felt like it hurt Nash. And it just worked. And he did that really well against Brett as well. And we'll, we'll go into that next. So Survivor Series 95 versus Bret Hart. And by the way, I, I forgot to say this with the first match. I gave this one an 8 out of 10. I'm not trying to be Dave Meltzer. But the Shawn Michaels match, I gave an 8 out of 10. It was just a really entertaining match to watch. It could have been much better, I'm sure. But it was a really good match. And the, the in case you're worrying, wondering, the Slamboree match... I gave a 7 out of 10. It was good. Could have Again, could have been better. I think that Kevin Green ruined that one for me. Had they have had a really good third, third guy like Chris Benoit, that would have sold the match to me. Or somebody who was just better at wrestling, who knew what they were doing. I think that would have made the match even better. So Survivor Series 95 with Bret Hart. I gave this match an 8 out of 10 also. So it was equally as good to me as the match against Shawn Michaels what I loved at the beginning of this match was the psychology between Bret Hart and Kevin Nash they did something that I don't often see in wrestling matches to begin with you had two guys if I remember Kevin Nash and Bret Hart were both they were both at least getting cheered. I'm not sure who was supposed to be the heel in this match. I know that Brett would probably be the, the face, but I'm not sure if this was a face versus face match or if Diesel was just getting cheered by the fans. Anyway, it was a great start to the match because Nash pulls the turnbuckle pad off. And this is before the bell's gone. This is as the referee's preparing the match. Bret Hart turns around and he does the same to the opposite turnbuckle. And this, to me, really enforces what's to come. They really drive home the point here from a psychology perspective that both fighters are willing to go to any lengths necessary to win this match. And for someone like Bret Hart, that's a big deal. For Bret Hart, a big face to turn around and just be like, screw the rules in this match. We know, well, we know there aren't any rules in the match. So therefore, I'm going to go above and beyond and do whatever it takes to win. And that psychology, it was such a simple thing, but it really made this match engaging. It really set the match off on the right foot. And it was something that resonated with me and it grabbed my attention and made me want to watch on. So Nash was a corner expert, and this is what I alluded to in the last match. What I loved was the way that he would trap his opponents to inflict damage. And it was this psychology of corner spots are great because it shows that there's no escape. And when you've got Kevin Nash in front of you, a seven-foot monster, 
and he's delivering whether it's the forearm smashes to the face or whether it's the knees to the midsection what nash did was trap you and he utilized his power and this is the greatest way of developing somebody who's slow by trapping your opponent because once they're trapped it doesn't matter how fast or slow you are they're trapped the opponent's got nowhere to go. The only thing that's going to happen is they're going to get hurt. And that's what I loved about this match. Kevin Nash and what he did in other matches against so many other opponents. So people who complain about the corner spots that Nash did, I actually really appreciate them because I see the psychology behind it. And to me, as a fan, it said, this is a guy who's trapping his opponent, making sure that they can't get away to inflict damage and to me that's smart that's just what you would do like that's a logical thing if i'm big strong but slow the best way that i'm gonna hurt somebody is if i trap them put them in a situation where they can't escape because he knows his power there's no way that bret hart's gonna overpower him to get out of the corner and he's in the corner so there's no way of wriggling out the only way is like Rey mysterio figured it out and would often duck between his legs but you would have to be a super fast guy to be able to do that kind of escape. And Brett, Sean, they weren't that fast. They were fast wrestlers, but they weren't that fast. Uh, he used a padded chair for a shot on Brett, which sounded terrible and silent. But as much as I'm complaining about that chair spot, I was thinking at the time, like, why didn't WE stick with the padded chair shots for the headshots? It would have, I'm not saying it would have stopped all the CTE stuff, I'm just saying that I actually wish they'd have stuck with padded chairs for, for shots to the head. I think it would have taken a lot of the impact out. It would have helped a lot of the wrestlers in their health to not get concussed. I just, it's a shame. I wish they brought back padded chairs because I actually think you could do more head spots with the padding because you could tell that it was so heavily padded that it wasn't necessarily going to hurt them in the same way. And obviously... There's nothing like hearing the crack of a chair on somebody's body. But at the same time, I feel like if wrestling would have just stuck to padded chair shots and never gone to the bare metal chair, fans wouldn't have known any different. And we would have still taken the impact of the chair shot, even if it was padded, as being heavier than the average move or blow. So I kind of wish they did that more. I wish they would stop doing the normal chair shots and actually go back to padded chairs. I also never got it because I was like, I've sat on one of those chairs before and they're so uncomfortable. Like, why would anybody want to sit on a, an exposed metal chair? It just didn't make sense. And I was like, the timekeeper is sitting at this event for like three hours on that chair. His back must have been screwed. I was like, I want a padded chair, man, if I'm going to sit down for that long. So for me, it was like logical that the ring announcers and all that stuff, the bell ringer and whoever it was, they would have a padded chair. It would make sense. Maybe there would be an exposed one under the ring or somewhere else that you could get it from. But I always wondered, like, padded chairs should always have been the, the bigger initial chair shot. And I think they should have used the metal chairs sparingly and only bought those out in situations of, like, dire desperation. He sells being bitten really well. Bret Hart breaking the rules, which was great. To see Bret Hart like such a clean face, actually breaking the rules, biting Nash. But Nash just sold it well. And this is what I've said before. He just always had a way of using his voice 
to help people understand when he was in pain and I loved it I thought he was very realistic with his screams he didn't he didn't go over the top and sound like a child or a girl when he was screaming he just made it sound like he was literally in pain from what was happening and it was a great way of selling and it was just this small nuance that really added to the match and to the experience there was a really good story being told I love the way that they use the exposed turnbuckle they didn't just use it once at the end of the match. And this is something that it would have ticked me off if they'd have just used the turnbuckles once at the very end after exposing them at the beginning of the match. What I loved is that they went straight to the corners. Like there was one corner in particular that they use in this match, but they actually used the turnbuckles as a means of attack and offense. And that made it great for me because I was like, I appreciate the fact that you... You intended to use them and you're actually doing what you're intended to do. Because most wrestling matches don't make sense when they expose a turnbuckle and then for some reason it doesn't get used all through the match. And then at the very last minute, they use it and that finishes them off. Now, while I agree that the pain that it causes should lead you to the finish, I don't agree with the idea of exposing turnbuckles or bringing chairs in or weapons in early and not using them. It makes no sense to me. I think logically it just doesn't add up. Whereas if you, you if they're out there, you should be looking to use them straight away because ultimately it was a no disqualification match. You could do what you wanted. So why wouldn't you use illegal objects? Why wouldn't you use things that are going to help you to ultimately win? So I love the fact that they kept doing stuff around the ring post. I love that Brett used the cable and even though it looked a little bit, it was, it was I think they just timed it right where Nash gets caught and Brett ties Nash's leg to the ring post using like a microphone cable. And I think if they'd have gone much further, it would have become unbelievable. It would have just become silly. And they just finished it before, just as I was beginning to get bored with it, and think, okay, now it's time Nash should have got out of this. He should have focused on his ankle and got himself away from being tied to the post. Just as I was beginning to feel that, they stopped. So I feel like they timed it okay. Like, maybe they could have done it a little bit sooner, but that's that's me being very picky. But I love the fact that they used the turnbuckles. I love the fact that they were focusing most of the match around the start point of the match where they psychology wise they just said this is what to expect and they actually delivered on it another good table spot i'm going to go back to the Shawn michaels one that was a power bomb through the table this one was much different this was simply nash shoving bret hart off of the ring apron into the table and i just loved it it was such a basic spot but it made sense nash saw the table behind him behind Brett and he just pushes Brett off and Brett goes flying into the table and through it and it was just this is what I'm saying these inventive ways of doing the same thing are what make a match interesting to watch it makes it repetitive viewing I could watch another match like that even if I knew there would be a table spot because I would know Nash is smart enough to think of more than one way to go through a table so if I know the spot's going to come I'm still interested because I don't know how it's going to happen. And that was something that Nash did really well. And again, I don't think he gets enough credit for that. I thought it was really smart and it was fun to watch. It was just fun watching a different way of going through a table. It's a, I've seen it before. 
don't get me wrong, but it's not one that you see all the time. And nowadays it would be tougher because the tables are stronger. But back then it was just literally one of those wooden tables that you'll get like a buffet or something. So it was great watching Brett get pushed through like that. It really sold it well as well. So Brett did a good job too. Finally, I wasn't a huge fan of the ending because it was sort of not sold right by Brett, but it did make sense. And that was actually the only slight disappointment for me of the match because I think what happened was it was just a roll-up pin, but it, it just sort of happened so quickly. And it didn't quite resonate with me. I don't... I think it either they either wrestled for too long or they didn't build the finale up right. And that's why I said that Brett didn't sell it. Brett was playing possum, but it didn't look like he was playing possum. And at the end of it, you didn't feel like Brett had outsmarted Nash with the pin. It just felt like Brett had done a move and managed to pin him. So it felt a little bit more accidental than intentional. And that was the only issue I had with it. But it did make sense with the way that the match had gone and the way that Nash got hit. Everything made sense about the finish. So I, I did in, I did get it, even though I wasn't necessarily a huge fan of it. Okay, so that's the three matches that I've watched out of the way. Obviously, this is the review now as we go into the different areas of Kevin Nash is going to be all around the, the overall knowledge that I have of Kevin Nash in different areas. So these three matches are the, the three I would recommend. I, I would say go and watch those. I did also watch Kevin Nash versus Goldberg at Starcade 98. I had to watch it. It was a match that I had a lot of interest in being a massive Goldberg fan in the late 90s. So I made sure I watched that match and I never forget how horrible it felt at the end of it. I think I was the same as most Goldberg fans, really. I just, I hated that they stopped it and ended Goldberg's streak the way they did. And Nash seemed to look like a guy who didn't fully agree with the way it ended either, if I'm honest. And I know a lot of people blame, easily blame and attack the NWO and Nash and Hogan and the backstage politics. But to me, it honestly looked like Nash didn't like the way that match ended. That was just me looking at his reaction. And not like the fake reaction of why is he injured. That's not what I'm saying. It just felt like there was something there that said, I, why did we do this finish? It doesn't make sense. And WCW were great at messing up finishes. It was one of their staples was that they were brilliant at just not finishing matches in the right way. Anyway, the first thing we're going to look at for the review is Kevin Nash's character. If you've listened to the first episode, the introduction episode, I talk about the differences of what a character is. So the characters of Kevin Nash would be Big Daddy Called Diesel. It would be Kevin Nash in WCW. It would be Oz in WCW, Vinny Vegas in WCW. These are the characters, but I'm looking at the sort of most popular one or two, which in this case would be Diesel and Kevin Nash. Kevin Nash being the main character that was over. The score is out of 22, so I have given Kevin Nash a character score of 21. So I've almost given him 22 for that. And the reason I didn't give him 22 is because, and it was difficult because I really wanted to. I think the reason I didn't give him the full marks was really around this idea that 
Diesel didn't carry the ball when he was the WWF champion. A lot of people have talked about his popularity and or lack thereof. Like There was something to love about Diesel that was easy to get behind, but on the flip side, I always felt like he struggled to be a bad guy or a good guy. That was my personal perception of Kevin Nash on a whole. With Diesel and Kevin Nash, I felt like he was always sort of flitting between being liked and disliked. The NWO era, when it first started, Nash was easily a heel. It was obvious. That was the one time where I loved Kevin Nash's character, but it just didn't happen consistently enough. Once the NWO became cool, Nash kind of began to be cool and embrace the fact that the fans were cheering. And I didn't like that because I wanted him to just play into the heel character that that went into the business of WCW to try and take over and show them that they were crap wrestlers and that they were the best guys coming from WWF. And so I think I just sort of lost that full marks just because there was that little bit that I wanted that just didn't come out. And that's why I wish I'd have seen more in WCW days. I really wish that Nash had have stayed as... He was always cool, and that's fine. But when you look at it, when you look at the NWO and the way that they sold themselves, they wanted to be faces. Uh, there was a very intentional switch where they knew that they were cool, and you could see that they were embracing the fact that we want to be well-known, we want to be popular, we want the fans to like us, and I hated that bit. That was the bit that really started turning me off of the NWO because... I was like, you guys are supposed to be the enemy, so act like it. Don't act like you're the good guys. Let WCW be the good guys unless the crowd want to switch it around. And the crowd didn't want to switch it. They were never going to let WCW be the bad guy. The only difference was they weren't stupid. Like They didn't buy into the story enough to sell the NWO as an organization. So for them, they were like, we're just going to support both. Because we know that WCW owns all of this. And that was the only problem. I think that they they, they just went so crazy with the NWO that it, it didn't sell right. And therefore it negatively affected Nash's character. Only a little bit though. We're not talking massive amounts here. Just a small bit. Introduction episode, I talk about how charisma influences all of the areas that I'm about to talk to you about. It's not a standalone area. It actually influences everything. And I think that Nash's charisma, and he did have good charisma, but when it came to selling his character, I think that he was slightly misguided on some of the times that he would sell his character and what he should have been. Um, there were times when he was a face and it was great, and he did a great job of that. But I just wish that, for me personally, that the NWO had always been this massive heel faction. From start to finish, it should have been the elite heel faction. But we'll go into all that another day. Don't worry, we're going to talk about the NWO another time. The second area that I want to talk about is physique. Now, we've talked about physique. Again, introduction episode will explain all of this fully. But the idea is I've given Kevin Nash 21 out of 22 for physique. And the reason, and it's very simple, that I've not given him full marks is because he didn't really have many 25-minute matches without looking blown up at some point during the match. And this isn't his fault. This is naturally because of his size, and it was just something that was never going to happen well. You look at wrestlers like Michaels, Bret Hart, 
Rick Flair, Ricky the Dragon, Steamboat. These are all guys who have got full stamina who could go a good hour in a match without a problem. With Kevin Nash, it felt like there would always be, and it was this way with any big guy, by the way. It's not just Kevin Nash. It's not his fault. It's just something naturally that happens when you're that size and you're that weight as well. You're just slower. And it means that the only way you could go like in an hour match is if you're working with somebody who's going to sell more and work. They would arguably have to work twice as hard. If he worked with Shawn Michaels, Shawn Michaels is doing twice as much work to sell Kevin Nash. Because for every slow move that Nash does, Michaels has got to react with speed, power, agility. He's always got to counter the slowness of Nash to keep the match entertaining. I've never been a big fan of two slow workers working together. It's very lethargic and it gets boring very quick. So unless it's a quick match, I'm not a big fan of two big guys working together. Unless, of course, you've got someone like Bam Bam Bigelow, who was such a rare talent. Even Vader was rare enough. But Vader would blow up as well. He would easily lose stamina in the middle of matches. And when you watch Shawn Michaels versus Vader at SummerSlam, you see that happen numerous times. They basically give Vader too much to do and he blows out and he's got no energy. And so when it comes to him actually working to sell and to win and, and overcome Shawn Michaels in a part of the match, it just doesn't work. You don't believe it because he looks shattered. I don't think Nash ever looked shattered, but he had injuries and we all know that he was prone to getting injured, especially with his knees. Obviously, he hurt his quad as well when he got into the ring which some people find funny. I don't. That was a bad injury for him to get. But these injuries also played a role, I think, in the fact that Nash wasn't able to fully fulfill his physique and the way that he looked because there really weren't many wrestlers that looked as good as Nash. Let's get to the positive of this. Nash was an absolute unit. He was the kind of tank that you just wouldn't want to fight. And that was what I loved about him. He was so believable as a guy that could just run your opponent over. And obviously diesel power was a big saying behind that idea that he was this big guy who could just bulldoze his opponents out the way and beat them. Now, the next area is Mike skills. Mike skills, again, it's not just about how he is on the microphone. If I were to rate Kevin Nash on his Mike skills alone on how he could talk, I promise you, he would have got a lower score than this. The fact that he was so good with psychology and with those small nuances, that's really what impressed me. So I ended up giving him a score of 20 out of 22. Like I said, it's all about the nuance. It's not just about what he delivers on the microphone. It's about the way that he comes across beginning, during and after a match as well. The charisma that... that Nash had that natural charisma really comes out when he's walking to the ring he's got a swag about him that you just look at and you know he's a badass you know that this guy is someone who is someone you know that he's got value as a wrestler and as a person as well like just as a personality you knew that he had a persona that was worth watching then when you look at the way that he sold punches the way that he sold his offense and defense with the punches the way that he would scream in pain when he was hurt, but it wasn't overly done. It was always just about right. It was the right amount of pain to display audibly 
to make you believe what was going on. And I loved it. I thought he was excellent at that. Really underrated, in my opinion. There were times where I felt that there were times where Nash was excellent on the microphone. He was a smart guy. He is a smart guy. He's an intelligent man. He's articulate. He knows how to talk. He makes logical sense with what he says. But I think that the way he says it isn't quite right. And I'll take the promo that he delivered when the NWO first came into WCW. In fact, his first ever promo in WCW was him and Scott Hall talking to Eric Bischoff. And Nash says about, this is where the big boys play, adjective on play, which is all fine. Some grammar police come in and say, oh, is that the right thing to have said? I'm not bothered about that. It was the way he said it that didn't quite sell with me. And that happened a lot with Nash. It was just, there were a lot of times when on the mic, he could have said something with so much more anger or so much more emotion and passion. And it just didn't come across like he was really angry or really passionate about what he was saying. And I think it got worse the longer he stayed in WCW. And we know why. Nash got bored, got fed up, got complacent because he had the guarantee money and the contract. So he lost a bit of that edge. And that that's the best word. He He, he just didn't have that edge with his promos that would have given him a, a higher mark. Even Shawn Michaels on the microphone, he had edge to him. There was always this edge that when he was angry, you felt that he was angry. When he was happy, you felt that he was happy. You could feel the the fact that this guy's comfortable. He's content with who he is at the moment. He's happy about his place in the company. He knows who he is and he he's safe in that environment. And there were other times where he felt desperate and you felt that he felt desperate. You actually believed it. Nash was almost there. Don't get me wrong. And I actually think he's not a bad actor, by the way. I, I don't think that Nash is a bad actor. I just think that when it came to the wrestling promos, I think he was trying so hard to be real that he forgot to be dramatic. And there's a there's a part of wrestling, professional wrestling, where you should over-dramatize. And that, and that makes it more real, ironically. It's this strange thing when it comes to cutting promos that I believe that in order for a pro wrestler to be more real, they have to be more dramatic and more overly dramatic. And that's what I think Nash didn't do. I just think he missed that over-dramatization of certain areas which would have made him more believable. So he gets a 20 for that, which is still a great score because of the things I've said. I still think he delivered good promos. Don't get me wrong, I think he's still better on the mic. If he went in a ring and did a promo today, he would still be better than everybody else on like 90% of the roster, whether that was WE or AEW. So he was very good on the mic. I just felt that there were these little tiny improvements that would have made him unbelievable on the microphone to listen to because he already had everything else so now the fourth major area of the wrestler that we look at is technique again if you heard the introduction episode you'll understand why i'm saying this if not go and listen to it because it explains all this stuff in detail but for technique i've given kevin nash 19 out of 22 some of you are going to be sitting there thinking how on earth has he given Kevin Nash 19 out of 22 for te technique, like technical ability? It's bigger than that. What I said earlier about the way that 
Kevin Nash wasn't the best technical wrestler, but what he did to make up for it was he created and displayed power in every move that he did. He gave the moves that he did do meaning by these small changes and upgrades that fit his character perfectly. And this is why his character gets a high score as well, is because Nash was able to sell everything as Kevin Nash. He was powerful. He was big. He was a unit who could run you over in a second. So every move he did felt like he was running you over. It felt heavy. It felt powerful. I could feel the impact of everything Nash did, even though he might not have done that many moves. Even though he wasn't as technically smooth as someone like Bret Hart, the moves when he sold them, you actually stopped and thought, geez, that must have hurt. Like, I wouldn't want to be picked up by Kevin Nash and dropped down. And I even look at his power bombs. His jackknife was the most beautiful power bomb in the business. I, I, it was my favorite power bomb in wrestling. I still use it on my own computer games now. Whenever I'm giving a power bomb to a character's move set, I always love to give the jackknife because it just looked like a great, powerful power bomb. That to me is how a power bomb should look. Between Nash and Sid, the two of them had very unique power bombs. Both of them, though, looked equally as devastating, and I love them. I hate power bombs nowadays. I really do genuinely hate them because I'm not sure if the guys just aren't strong enough to be able to safely lift their opponent and drop them. And somebody said it on Twitter the other day. They were watching Sid and they, a Sid powerbomb in a video and they said, just look at the way that Sid moves his hands to the hips of the wrestler just before he releases them. And what you'll see is by doing that, you flatten the back of your opponent so that when they land, they're not landing on one part of their back, which would damage their back. And Nash did the same thing. I don't know whether he did it intentionally, only he will know that, but I can only assume he did because he was relatively safe worker. I don't, I don't remember loads of people ever saying that Nash was a bad worker or was dangerous to work with. Bret Hart loved working with him for a reason and I only thought that he was very safe. I always see Nash when he's doing the power bombs. Whenever he's doing a move, he always looks like he's protecting his opponent, even though he manages to make the move look badass. So he gets a high score. He gets a 19 for that. Obviously, the areas where he lacks, he wasn't good technically. We know that he couldn't do moves smoothly. A lot of his wrestling was clunky. Even his punching and kicking in the corners, as powerful as it looked, it still looked very clunky. It didn't really flow in the way that you would like to see it flow. And I think he tried to address that. When I watched him fight Goldberg, he would line you up in the corner with his hands like he was a director getting the picture just before he laid the elbow. That was the kind of thing that I really loved. And I think if he'd have maybe adopted that earlier, and maybe he did, but I didn't see it in any of the matches I watched. I think if he'd have adopted that little bit of charisma that is how you mask not being a technical wrestler but you make it look like you know what you're doing and that's what I loved about Nash and that's why he gets a high score in all of these categories because his charisma was able to carry him in every area and he did a great job because he was an intelligent guy he was able to actually make sure that his brain influenced everything he did he didn't leave anything to accidental chance. He made sure that it was always deliberate. Everything he did seemed to be on purpose. 
And of course, there's always times where he makes mistakes, as every wrestler does, and that happened. But even when the mistake happens, he didn't look like somebody who fell apart mentally. He always seemed to have a good mental control of the match and what was going on, and could adapt when there was a bad situation that occurred. So now that we've looked at all of those those four points, let's go into the bonus category. Now, like I said before, in the introduction video, we talked about that these four areas add up to 88 points. And then the final four areas add up to the final 12 points. And then whatever you get is out of 100 at the end. So the, the next four categories are all based on three stars for each category. And I'll go through those now. In the champion category, I've given Kevin Nash three stars. And I think this is very, very straightforward. He's won a minor championship. He's won plenty of minor belts, intercontinental title holder, tag team belts, etc., etc. He's won minor championship belts in whatever company he's been in. He's definitely won the major. We've already talked about the fact that he's a five-time WCW World Heavyweight title champion. We've already talked about the fact that he won the WF title and had the year-long run with that belt. And these are the reasons he ended up getting to the Pro Wrestling Illustrated number one wrestler in 1995. So he's three stars for champion. For tag team, again, I would give him three stars. And the reason being, he's got tag team experience. We know with the Outsiders, they won the title in WCW eight times. And he won it multiple times, hence the eight. So he gets three stars for that. These are obviously much more factual things than what we've just discussed with the character, physique, mic skills and technique. These parts are more factual. We can prove them. They're existing in history. We can just point to them and say, this is why I've given him these scores. For the stable, he's also got three stars. The first star he gets is because he's either been or he has had a manager, usually with Scott Hall. Shawn Michaels, he was obviously the bodyguard manager when he first came into WF. Vinny Vegas, when he was with DDP and WCW, is the same. He's been in a stable. He's had stable experience, so he gets a second star for that. So that's his second star. And then for the final one, we know that he's led a stable. We know that Kevin Nash has actually been in charge, one of the main decision makers within a stable, the NWO. So... That would give him the third star for the stable. And then finally, the last category that we're looking at is the Legends category. I give three stars for this. One is because they've been a legend without a title. So he obviously gets that. I think even if he hadn't won the title, he would still be a legend in the business. He's been a legend and won a title. So that means he gets the second star. So that's the difference between one and two. And then he's also main evented one of the main shows in one of the major organizations. He's actually done it for both. He's headlined WrestleMania, he's headlined Starcade. And because he did those two, that gives him the third star. So actually he gets a full 12 out of 12 for the second four categories, which is great. And as you will know, if you've done your additions and if you've done your maths correctly... That gives him an overall rating out of 100. It gives him 93. 
So Kevin Nash is a 93 out of 100. Obviously, that's a very high score to start with. I hope that I've explained why appropriately for you, and you can all debate this online if you do or don't agree with some of the scores that I've given. If you've got arguments that you want to put forward, cases for either improvements or decreases in the score, you can always hashtag the Wrestling Journal, and we can talk about those online. I can have a look at the comments that you leave on the YouTube videos and stuff like that. Just let me know how you feel. Let me know what you think of the scores and we can talk more in depth about all of these things. The other thing I wanted to bring up at this point when it pertains to the the overall score is that ratings can be similar. He can have a, a similar rating to someone else. There are other wrestlers I know that have got a 93, for example. And then it really comes down to where they rank on my overall wrestling list to find out who the greatest of all time is. And to do that, and the way that I differentiate is then down to the charisma. This is where charisma and overness come into it. And that will help you understand why Kevin Nash is above some of the other guys who are also rated 93. Kevin Nash was one of the most over wrestlers in the business, period. You cannot argue that. The NWO went mainstream and had appeal outside of the wrestling hardcore fan base. It reached people who never thought they would like wrestling. And I know that because I had friends at school while this was going on who loved wrestling out of the blue, who hated it for years. And then when the NWO came along, they loved it. And the NWO was the catalyst for the Attitude Era, whether you like it or not. I know that there were loads of points that happened before that. People will go back to like Bret Hart versus The Undertaker as sort of the genesis of the Attitude Era where Shawn Michaels gets spat on by Bret Hart and then hits Bret with the chair. That is seen as like the genesis, but this was definitely the catalyst. This was the thing that made the engine go. This was the filter that that actually made you want to watch wrestling. This is what really made you sit down and say, I'm going to just stay on this channel for a while and see what's happening. And I loved it, personally. So that's why Nash has got 93. That's why he's above any of the other 93s that I've scored. That gives him an overall rank. Are you ready for this? That gives him an overall rank on the greatest wrestlers of all time list of 15. So he is the 15th highest wrestler on my list, the 15th greatest wrestler of all time. And I'm sure that people are going to be listening to that and want to argue the point, and I'm down for that if you want to. Let's talk online about it. Why is Kevin Nash justifiably at 15th? Why should he be higher? Why should he be lower? That's down to you guys to tell me. But for me, there are 14 other wrestlers that are better than him. But he is definitely one of the the all-time greats. Certainly somebody that I value very highly. He, If it was down to my own popularity and what I like, Nash would probably be higher than that. But I've tried to be as fair as I can when I'm doing these reviews. So there you go. That is the end of our review for Kevin Nash. We found out that he's got an overall rating of 93, overall ranking of 15th. You guys are now on it. You need to discuss it, talk about it online, share your thoughts with me, have conversations. And then what we'll do next in the next episode, before we review the next wrestler, 
I'm going to talk about some of the feedback, if any, that I get about this wrestler, Kevin Nash, the personality. If people send me videos and clips, we'll have a look at those and we'll just maybe just review those areas and see if it changes my mind. Like, I'm open to have my mind changed. I'm not going to be stuck with cement on all of these ratings and ranking positions. Everything's malleable. It can all change. So it's down to you guys now as a community to talk about this. And then if you present a good argument, I'll change things. I'll change the character's stats and I'll change his overall rating. Obviously, the ones that won't change, the champion, the tag team, the stable and the legend, none of those will change because they can't be changed. They're historic facts. But this character, the physique, the mic skills and the technique, once you learn what they mean by watching and listening to the introduction episode, then you can change those if you present a really good argument. Now, before we go any further, before we finish this episode, I'm going to announce the next wrestler that we're going to review. I'm not going to sell it too much. I kind of want to do the whole wrestling sale, but I don't want to build this up too much. The wrestler that we're going to review next and the way that I'm going to do this is there'll be a legend followed by a modern wrestler, somebody who's currently wrestling. That's how I want to do this because I'm a big Legends fan, but I don't want this podcast to become a Legends-only exclusive review. There are going to be wrestlers who get reviewed who've got very low scores. There are going to be ones that have got high scores. But the one thing I want to be consistent on is making sure that I present people who are both in the current wrestling business and ones from the past. That way we can get an overview and we can start really comparing generational talent. So the next guy that I'm going to look at, and I'm doing this because I've been thinking about this wrestler recently anyway. I've been talking a lot to friends about what this guy should be doing in the business. I am going to review none other than the Viper, Randy Orton. So we'll do that in the next episode. But thank you so much for being patient, for listening to this whole thing in its entirety. I hope you've enjoyed the first review. Let me know your feedback. You've got comment sections on YouTube. You've got comment sections online. Hashtag The Wrestling Journal. You can follow me at The Wrestling Journal. Okay, so it's at Wrestling Journal. That's journo, not journal. You take the L, the A and the L out, and then you add the O at the end. Kevin Nash, thank you so much. You've been you my first follower on Twitter, so this is a tribute to you um, as my way of saying thank you, putting you on the first episode, getting you over, and just showing my appreciation for everything that you did in the business and continue to do as a human being. Very intelligent guy, always fun reading his tweets and seeing what he's got to say online. So thank you, Kevin Nash, for all of the history and all of the enjoyment and fun that you've given me as a, as a kid and as a fan growing up, loving wrestling and loving it even more when my non-wrestling fans became wrestling fans, partly because of the incredible work that you did in your career. So until next week, we're going to look at Randy Orton. I'm X Harper. Have a great time. Have a great week. Enjoy wrestling. Enjoy whatever it is you watch, whether it's old school stuff, current stuff, or weird, random indie stuff. Whatever it is, enjoy it, and I will see you soon.